Welcome to Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla, where it's you who sets the conversation. Join us for the next hour as we take a fresh look at how we think about spirituality. And how we think about the whole world. I guess that's what we're supposed to be doing here. Welcome, good afternoon. It's wonderful to be with you at uh, what's probably a very tense, well, not probably, it is a very tense time for all of us. Lots of concern over what's going to unfold in the next few days and quite tempting I suppose to go down that rabbit hole and have that conversation over here but this show is about spirituality and how we apply it in our lives and we're going to avoid things of a political nature so we just hope and we pray we pray that this is the month of Kislev which is a month historically associated with miracles a month is which is historically associated with the uh, the overpowering of darkness using the power of light. I had a really interesting debate with somebody yesterday. I believe that they're a religious person. I don't know, don't know them personally because that is the nature of online debate. But I shared the fact that if you have a look at Hanukkah, which is the hallmark of this month, it is a celebration of the Festival of Lights. I mean, that's how we refer to it. The Gemara, the Talmud, when it discusses Hanukkah, says, My Hanukkah, what is the essence of the Festival of Hanukkah? And it describes the story, yes, of a military victory, but equally of the fact that our the, the representation at the time, the Maccabees, <coughs> please excuse me, the Maccabees, the Hashemonaim, and the fact that they found the one vial of oil which shouldn't have lasted for that long and landed up lasting for eight days, and hence the miracle, hence the celebration, is a celebration of light. So you look in the Rambam, Maimonides, when he defines what the festival is all about, it's a festival of light. So Yes, it's, it's incredibly important. This is the whole debate. The person was saying it's important for us to take up arms and fight against our enemies, which is true. It's an imperative of any decent society to protect itself from, from villainous peoples. So that's without a question. But that's not what the, the festival of Hanukkah really is all about. It's actually about the dominance of light over darkness. We have to speak about that, especially, especially for those of us who think ourselves as keyboard warriors and we're going to make a difference to the Middle East because of our opinions that we share on social media, which may or may not, but we certainly make a difference in terms of our spiritual impact. And perhaps that's something we could speak about is some of the amazing stories that we're hearing coming out of Israel of people describing outright miracles and reinforcing again and again and again about the spiritual impact that we have through our prayers and through added mitzvahs and so on and so forth. So it is quite, as I said, tempting at this time to speak about these things and analyze and overanalyze and pick apart exactly what's going on in Israel and is the government doing things right and are the military doing things right and is this the way uh, we all have opinions obviously and some of us have very strong opinions this is a our focus is to talk about spiritual values that help enrich our lives so that's where we're going to focus ourselves today as we do always right so just to run through what it is that you need to do if you want to be part of this conversation you've always got to have these numbers handy and that is 34519 as the SMS number because you can always share your thoughts by SMS. You can always use the Telegram number 0618951019 and social media always, I think Twitter in particular, or X, X as it is called. How are you supposed to say that? Is X the platform known as X Twitter or is it just known as X? It's confusing. The whole thing is confusing. But if you are into the uh, if you're into the world of social media, you obviously know all these nuances. So you can find either Chai FM or myself or both on social media, and that's a great place where you could message, share your thoughts, share your insights. So what I'm going to try and do is this: I'm try and move away 
as much as possible from the world of what everybody seems to be so caught up in right now, which is the world of politics and military. Let's talk about something which is spiritual, something which is meaningful. We are at this time of the year. It's the month of Kislev. It's supposed to be a time where we radiate light, we share light, and that is what shifts and changes the realities of our world. So let's talk about shifting, about sharing light. Let's talk about shifting energies. Let's talk about lessons that we could learn possibly from what we're studying as a Jewish community in the Torah this week, because there's some really profound lessons in the Torah portion this week. Somebody this morning said to me that this has to be this week's Torah portion has to be one of the wildest Torah portions that they have ever studied. And I was I was quite taken aback by that. I mean, bear in mind, we have stories of the great flood in Noah's Ark, the exodus from Egypt. I mean, those are pretty dramatic stories. What exactly caught his attention in this week's Torah portion that would have called it the wildest of all the uh, Torah portions that he's learned until this point? Quite interesting. And I, I challenged him on that. So what was it? And he spoke about the fact, and it really is interesting, just trying to get his head around how the Jewish nation came to be. The original 12 tribes and the fact that there were four different wives. It's like, it really is an interesting story. It really is. Because this is the Torah portion that focuses on a key chapter in Jacob's life, our forefather Jacob. And bear in mind, Jacob, as the one who produces 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is his other name. Jacob's other name is Israel. So he is really, if you wish, the foundation of the whole Jewish experience. And therefore the stories that happen in Jacob's lives, Jacob's life have a very strong and direct impact and are very important for us to know how to live our lives. So we've got to pick apart these stories. We've got to understand what is going on. So I'm going to start off right at the beginning. The first image that is shared in the Torah portion this week about Jacob is that Jacob leaves home. That's how the Torah portion begins. In fact, that's what gives the Torah portion its name. It is called the parish of Vayetze. He leaves. He leaves home. Home being Israel. Oh, sidebar. Let's bear in mind that we're talking over here about a period of three and a half, no, almost 4,000 years ago. Jacob, who is called Israel, who is the father of the nation that becomes Israel, is living in his home, which is, at that time, the geographical land of Israel. Yes, it was still known by the designation Canaan, but it would, in a few centuries after that, be renamed Israel after the conquest of Joshua. So, yeah, that is, I suppose, relevant to what's going on geopolitically, too. So Jacob leaves home. He leaves Israel. The reason he leaves home is because he's got a brother, twin brother. Everybody always thinks of him as an older brother, but he's, what, older by a minute or so. And this older brother is belligerent. He's aggressive. He's got a chip on his shoulder really angry and ready to kill, literally kill his brother Jacob. And so therefore, the prudent thing to do is to leave home and find somewhere safer to be, which he does. And Rashi's commentary, which is really important, and I think this is something we have to reflect on. Rashi's comment, Rashi, as we know, is the key commentator, the foremost commentator on the verses of the Torah. Rashi tells us that the fact that the Torah highlights that Jacob left the place where he was. It doesn't just say he traveled to destination X, traveled to the town of Haran or the, the land of Haran. But it says he left Israel. It's to tell us that when a righteous person leaves a place, it makes a massive impact on the place. And that massive impact is that the place loses its charm. It loses its beauty. It loses its prominence. And I think about that a lot, you know. 
because if you look at the history of the geographical land of Israel, in those periods of history where the Jews have been driven out of Israel, the land lost its beauty, lost its prominence, was desolate for generations, for centuries. Look at Mark Twain's description of what the land was like when he toured through it and how it was a place of desolation because that's exactly what we this week's Torah portion starts off with. When righteous people move out of a place, particularly when they move out of their place, it's going to have an impact. It's going to become a place of desolation. Enough said about that. I really wanted to get to the next part of the story. And I'm going to ask you, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but the next part of the story is that Jacob has this dream. It's one of the better-known dreams in the Bible of a ladder. And the ladder extends from the ground all the way into the heavens, and it has angels climbing that ladder. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you read about this ladder, when you hear about this ladder? What what does what, it invoke for you? What does it mean to you? Love to hear your thoughts. Three four five one nine via SMS oh six one eight nine five one zero one nine on Telegram. We could share your thoughts on X dot com. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Okay, so I know what's going to happen is whenever I put the audience on the spot to share things that have to do with Torah knowledge, people are a little bit shy, a little bit reticent. So I get it. But my question really is when you picture, just picture the scene, okay? So you've got Jacob, who is this incredibly great, righteous individual, and his dream is of a ladder that is firmly planted on the ground, and it reaches all the way into the heavens, and it's got angels that are on the way up and on the way down the ladder. So the first thing that grabs everybody's attention, obviously, is just try and picture this thing. So you picture this, I guess, slanted ladder, because that would make sense, even though, um, you wouldn't think it to be slanted. You'd think it could be a vertical ladder, but the commentaries actually tell us it was a slanted ladder that effectively spanned most of the geographical land of Israel. And you picture this incredible scene of a ladder that extends into the heavens. Reminds me a little bit of when we were in Tanzania and we went up Mount Meru. So when you arrive at the base, and it's the same with Kili or any of these large mountains, when you arrive at the base, you can't see the peak because the peak is above the clouds. So that's kind of the picture that... that that I have of this ladder that just extends and extends and eventually disappears into the clouds. Although that's not what the Torah says. It doesn't say that it's extended to the clouds. It said it extended to the heavens. That implies obviously something which is altogether different. I'm not quite sure if we even know how to define it. And there are angels. This is the part that gets, that gets the attention of all of the commentators. There are angels that are climbing and descending the ladder. And all of the commentators say, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Don't angels live in heaven? Surely, if there are angels on a ladder that's from earth to heaven, surely you would first be told about the angels that are coming down off the ladder, and then you'd be told about the angels that are climbing from the earth up the ladder, because isn't that where angels originate, right? They originate at the top of the ladder, in the heavens. So why does the Torah describe that they were going from the ground up? Now, of course, you could be a little bit cynical about this and say, well, it's a dream, and dreams are always full of inaccuracies and impossibilities, so what's the big deal? But it's not just a dream. It's a highly prophetic dream. Look at Jacob's response after he's had the dream. He's in awe, and he says, wow, I didn't realize that this is a holy place and that it is the entrance way to the heavens. And again, if you identify his route, you see that at this point, Jacob is in Jerusalem, what would in the future become known as Jerusalem. At that point, it's known as Shalem. And he's on a place specifically in Jerusalem, which is called Mount Moriah, which again in the future is going to become known as the Temple Mount. 
So he's in a really important place and he's now realizing the value of the place. This is the portal to heaven. This is where heaven and earth connect. So it's not just a dream with all the fallacies that our normal dreams have. This is a highly significant dream. And so the question is, why? Why are there angels going up before the angels are going down? And everybody weighs in and everybody gives a particular perspective on what this teaches us. So, for example, Rashi, who, as I mentioned, is the foremost commentator on the Torah, your go-to commentator if you want to know what a verse means, because unfortunately most people are, do a pretty good job of misinterpreting verses of the Torah because we don't necessarily have the context and background to understand the language and the style of, of Torah language or Torah communication. So Rashi says, you have to understand, Jacob is leaving Israel and is about to venture off into this place called Haran. And a person of that caliber has these angels that accompany him when he travels. And there are angels that are designated for him in Israel. But when he goes outside of Israel, he needs different angels because it's a different spiritual energy. Israel is a heightened divine energy. And outside of Israel is a diminished divine energy. So you need different angels. And that's how Rashi explains it. The angels who accompany Jacob through his travels in Israel are now climbing the ladder and leaving, whereas the angels who are going to now accompany him into Haran, those are the angels who are coming down the ladder. They're, they're the ones who are going to lead him into this next phase of his experiences, which is great. It's a, it's a beautiful explanation. There's another explanation, and that is that this ladder is supposed to represent the experience of prayer. Because prayer is a graded experience, just like a ladder has rungs, prayer has chapters, it has different steps to it. You don't just walk into a prayer experience and feel connected. I know that's what a lot of people expect. It's not actually what happens in practice. There's a ladder to climb. There's a technique to prayer, which unfortunately most people are unaware of and probably isn't taught enough. But there is a technique to prayer. There's a way in which a Jewish person is meant to pray. And it's graded. You go through various steps. You you move through a process. So that's what this prayer, the, sorry, that's what this ladder represents. It's a ladder that starts grounded like we do. Because when we try to start the prayer experience, we're very much stuck in our here and now, in our materialism. Have we had our coffee yet? Was the shower hot enough? Did we get to the gym now let's pray. And we've got to shift ourselves. The, the objective of prayer is to shift ourselves and to say, hang on a second. Life is not just about being in the material reality. It's about moving and growing and elevating ourselves. And so we climb and we climb to higher awareness and higher awareness till eventually we're actually in the heavens, which means to say that we're able to look at our world with the benefit of the perspective of heaven itself, which is also a very beautiful and very practical explanation of this image of the ladder. Something we should all take home and think for a moment, especially now where everybody feels compelled to pray more. We should really think about how does prayer work and how do we maximize the impact of prayer? How do we do this right? How, how do we do this to the best of our abilities? There is another explanation, and this is a really, really beautiful explanation. And I think it's something we need to talk about in a lot of detail, because if we're going to jump ahead in the story, which is, so Jacob goes to Haran just for context. Israel for Jacob is a place of serenity. It's a place of holiness. Jacob spends his time in Israel, as the Torah describes it, in the tents of study. He spends his time as a person 
of simplicity and sincerity. And now he's got to go to Choron. Choron is the domain of his wayward, crooked uncle. That's his mother's brother. A man called Lavan who cannot say one straight sentence without lying. Who cannot construct one decent business deal without cheating somebody. And who constantly makes Yaakov, Jacob's life a misery by always moving the goalposts. So you'd think that somebody who's lived such a blessed life in Israel, surrounded by great people, his father, the descendants of Noah who were the custodians of Torah at the time, as we see, he's accompanied by angels. It's just a pristine environment. You would think that going into the fray of Lavan's world, having to work hard, we're going to discover that Jacob is going to work for 20 years, literally without a break. It's an incredible thought. And... During that time, he's going to fight with his father-in-law about pretty much everything. He wants to marry the the daughter, Rachel, and his father-in-law is going to make it a whole issue for him. He's going to try and make a little bit of money. Every time his father-in-law is going to change the rules of the game and the rules of remuneration. Eventually, when they make a, 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 a pact and they, they come up with a plan of how Jacob's going to get flock, Lavan still makes issues for him. And then when he tries to go home, there's another clash. And yet here's the interesting thing. At the end of it, we're told that Jacob returns home to Israel accompanied by many, many more angels than what he saw originally in that dream. The question is, how did that happen? How is it possible that a person should experience more angels from being in a less spiritual environment? doesn't seem to add up. So that's something that we need to try and unpack. If you have a thought, if you have an insight, if you've heard something, if you've learned something, why don't you go ahead and share it with us, 34519 on Telegram. It's 0618951019. Otherwise, the channels of social media are at your disposal. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Okay, so we're talking over here today about, well, I'm trying to learn a lesson or two from a piece of this week's Torah portion. This is Fresh Thinking. We try and understand spiritual concepts <coughs> and how they apply in our lives. Practical things. So yeah, we've got this dream, this vision that our forefather Jacob has. It's right at the beginning of the Torah portion that we're going to read this week. And it is a vision of a ladder that extends from the ground all the way into the heavens. And it is filled with angels, angels climbing and descending the ladder. And we're trying to unpack what's the message. What are these angels? Why are they climbing ladders? Don't angels fly? Nobody ever thought about that, right? Don't angels fly? <laughs> Isn't that how they get around? Why on earth are they using the stairs? Yeah? I guess it's like people, I suppose, who are claustrophobic because they don't want to get into the lift. I don't think angels have these problems. Why are they climbing? And why is it that on the way leaving Israel, when you would expect that he is, Jacob is at the peak of his spirituality, he has a few angels. We don't know exactly how many, but we understand that it is a few angels. And yet when he comes back after having spent time in Haran, which is a spiritually devoid place dealing with real criminals, he now has more angels. And the reason that I'm focused on this is because it opens a door for us to explore one of the key principles of Judaism. So again, I was chatting to somebody earlier today, and they've recently started to 
get involved in studying the book of Tanya. For those of you who are familiar, the book of Tanya is the core teachings of the Chabad philosophy. It was written by the first Rebbe of Chabad, Rabbi Shneur Zalman, the Alter Rebbe. And in the book of Tanya, the particular section that he's studying at the moment, which is a particular section we study annually, I mean, there's a whole annual study of the Tanya, so it's the section that we're studying currently in the annual process. So <clears throat> what happens is it describes what nobody would expect. See, what everybody expects is spirituality is great. Spirituality is a good thing. Spirituality is what we should aspire towards. If you're a spiritual person, good for you. You've done well. I think many people would probably accept that as a principle or, or accept believe, I suppose, that that is really what Judaism wants from us, <coughs> that we should, we should believe. We should become spiritual people. And it's actually not that simple at all. Because the, the principle of Judaism is that just as much as it is limiting to be physical, physical is a finite reality, has its limitations, time, space, and so on, in exactly the same way it is limiting to be spiritual. And people don't think about this. But spiritual is just impressive to us because we are human, and we can't necessarily do spiritual things. So therefore, those who can, like angels who can fly, okay, that's, that's impressive to us. But it's only impressive to us, because something we can't do. And Judaism says, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Is that really <coughs> the measurement that, <coughs> that we should be using? Should we define things based on how much better than as they are, or should we be defining things by their reality? Now, I know that sounds a little bit abstract, so let's try and unpack it. Let's try and understand a little bit better. What on earth am I talking about? So, angels. Angels, you get two kinds of angels. Really interesting. You get two kinds of angels. We're told that there are angels that live, so to speak, forever. In our daily prayers, we speak about how Yoitzer Meshorasim, they are those servants of God, that he creates or that he forms, and then there are those who serve him in the long term. And the impression is basically this. There are certain angels that are made by God, and there are other angels that are made by circumstance. In other words, we also have the capacity to produce angels. Now, that's a fascinating thought. Maybe if you're a little bit more spiritually inclined, you perhaps resonate with this and you already think that, gee, that makes sense. I've always believed this. But the truth of the matter is that when we say that we produce angels, I'm not talking about you do something positive. Let's say, for example, you do a mitzvah. And therefore, as a result of that, there's some flurry, uh, fluffy, I don't know how you perceive an angel, feathered, <laughs> but some winged creature that is now kind of floating around because you did something right. So you did a mitzvah, for example, as the Talmud says, anytime that a person does a mitzvah, they create some kind of a defending angel that's going to stand up for them. So is that actually what it means? Is, is that what it means? That we, we now have these angels floating around us because we did something, because we did, so to speak, what God wants from us. 
It's not as simple as that. An angel is, yes, a spiritual being. Yes, an angel flies, which doesn't necessarily mean that it flies in the physical sense of, you know, we, how we imagine, because that's how we are, right? We imagine things obviously in terms that we can relate to. But it means that they move with ease between different dimensions. So flying indicates it can go upward, so they can move easily in an upward motion and can literally land up in, in different dimensions. But the fact that angels are created by what we do, very, very interesting topic, and that's what's depicted in this dream. We're sending angels up the ladder long before the angels come down the ladder, or to put it differently, we're creating energies that have an upward movement, and those energies create responding energies that have a downward movement. What on earth does that mean? Okay, how do you do that? What, what, what exactly are we expecting? Come back to that in just a moment. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. So here's the thing. The thing is that, and this is the massive shift that Judaism teaches us. If we think that spirituality is where it's at, we're always going to feel a little bit deficient. I'm a person, which means I belong very much in the physical, material reality. I need to eat, I need to sleep, I need some entertainment, I need social interaction, etc. So, you want me to become spiritual? I don't know. Uh, maybe I could do that some of the time. You know, I can allocate a few hours a day to meditate and pray and do some spiritual things. But fundamentally, the spiritual reality and my reality, they're pretty much at loggerheads. Now, when we talk about creating angels, what we're actually saying is this. Judaism believes the objective is to discover, listen to this carefully, to discover the divine spark in everything. Judaism is all about learning to discover the divine spark in everything. And the minute you change the word spiritual to divine, you've made a quantum leap. Because something that's physical is obviously finite. But something that is spiritual is also finite. So for example, I cannot fly like angels. But angels cannot eat like me. So I have my limitations that make me feel inadequate. Angels have their limitations that may also leave them feeling inadequate. So to trade one set of finite circumstances, being a physical human, for another set of more alluring finite circumstances, being an angel actually is no major upgrade. It's no major progress. So Judaism is about finding the divine. Divine means God. God means infinite. Now what people don't think about, most people when we think about infinite, we probably think about a timeline or even just a physical horizontal line that just continues infinitely. But what infinite really means is there are no boundaries. There are no restrictions. There are technically no rules. So the rule that tells you you need to be spiritual in order to connect to God is not a correct rule. 
You need to def- discover the divine spark in order to be close to God. And the divine spark might be found in an angel and it might be found here on earth. It might be found when Jacob is in Israel, living surrounded by holiness and holy people. But it actually might be found more so when he's in Choron, an imperfect world, a place of crooks, a place of challenges, a place of difficulties. Because let's put it really simply. If God, if the divine is infinite, you can't prove that God is infinite. In other words, beyond rules, beyond boundaries, by showing that he's in a spiritual environment. That makes sense. That fits the rules. A spiritual environment. Yes, obviously, that's where I would think you would find God. No surprises there. No lessons there. No insight there. But when I look in where I am right now, because we're each in our Haran right now. And, and that doesn't mean because of circumstances that are happening globally. That means because of my situation, my circumstances. Right now, I am in a Haran environment where there are people who are making my life difficult. Whether those be human people, whether it be the person inside my own head that keeps changing the, the goalposts and keeps challenging me to try keep up with the things that I'm supposed to do. Maybe it's just my physical exhaustion because it's that time of the year. That's my Choron. Maybe it's the bank balance and that's my Choron that's making it really difficult to connect and feel this meaningful spirituality. Each one of us, when we go through our life challenges, our rough times, our medical crises, God forbid, our family breakdowns, God forbid, our financial crashes, God forbid, those are the times that we say, I, I don't know. I don't know if I could be producing angels right now. I don't know if I could be connecting to God right now. And Jacob comes up to tell us, well, actually, this is exactly when it happens. Because God is not locked into beautiful, holy places. God is not only available when life is in its highest form. God is accessible here, now. Whatever's happening, because it's happening. Where are you going to find the angels? From the ground. Don't look for the angels that are coming, floating out of the heavens, because they're exciting, sparkly, shiny, but they're not where the infinite value lies. The angels we make, the way we interpret our life experience into a divine experience, that is where the power lies. That is where infinity lies. It's a really profound concept. You know, the sages ask, there's these 20 years that Jacob is working like a dog for his father-in-law. Not getting paid, by the way, in the beginning. And the sages ask, what kept him going? You know, no matter who you are, you've got to have somewhere to draw strength, somewhere to find resilience. What kept Jacob going? And the sages tell us, which is quite interesting, because historically... Tehillim Psalms wasn't even a thing yet. Most of the Psalms were composed by King David. So they're only coming into the picture hundreds of years later. At the same time, we know that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
and as well as their wives were prophets and they were able to intuitively know things that were going to be in the future. So the sages tell us that he actually, he would consistently recite Tehillim. He would consistently recite Psalms during the period that he was working for his father-in-law. And then they drill it down and they say, actually, there were 15 Psalms that he focused on. Psalm 120 to 134, 15 special Psalms that all speak of the same theme. Shir Hamalot or Shir Lamalot, which is basically the same concept, and that is a song of ascents. A song of ascents. Fascinating concept. What does it mean, a song of ascents? And so the mystics explain what's going on over here is that Jacob looked around at his circumstances. He understood that it was really challenging. It was very distracting. He actually had to modify his behavior to be misaligned with his core values. Because he tells his uncle, if you're going to try and cheat me, I guarantee you I will beat you at your own game. So that's this major compromise of his values. And at the same time, he's saying, this is all going to be, in the end, a lift for me. This is going to be a ladder I'm going to climb. I'm not going to come out of here destroyed. I'm going to come out of here transformed. I'm going to be a higher person having gone through this experience. There are ladders in our lives. When we think we're at rock bottom, we're on the ground, we've been chucked to the ground, there's a ladder at that point. That's how we're supposed to look at it. When we feel that we're inadequate in our spirituality or too drowned in our material stresses, that's where the ladder lies. That's where we're going to produce the angels. We'll wrap this up in just a minute. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. We were talking about creating angels. How do we create angels? By by discovering the divine spark inside the things that we're experiencing, inside ordinary life. We're not supposed to just simply live life as it happens. We're supposed to live life with a higher perspective, with a higher intention. And so when we speak about these angels that we create... That's exactly what we're speaking about. Discovering the value in life. This is what Judaism is all about. Discovering the meaning and the value in life. And so you have Jacob who goes through these 20 years of working really hard, slugging away inside a foreign and actually quite a hostile environment. And he's every single day saying this same set of prayers. Shira Malot, this will elevate me. Shira Malot, I will elevate the space. It will not drag me down. And that's what happens to Jacob. By the time he leaves, after having been with against all the odds, he's got a beautiful family. The only one of the three forefathers to have a family with all of his sons have the same values and are united. Even if they have their squabbles, they're united in the end. He emerges with massive wealth, which tells you that he's taken control of his environment. He's invested in his environment, and now he's reaping not only the material benefits, because he leaves with this incredible amount of flocks and sheep and and herds of cattle, etc., but he also leaves with extra angels. That is the template for how we're supposed to live our lives. We cannot just throw up our hands in despair and say, listen, it's so tough. I don't know how to be spiritual. I don't know how to connect. That's okay. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to get it right all the time. We don't have to meditate for hours every single day. We do have to look to find the divine spark in every experience of every day of our lives. Shir Hama'alot. We're supposed to elevate the world in which we live. Now, what's interesting about that is that it is Shir. It is a song out of 
all the psalms, they're all introduced in different ways. Some of them introduced as a song, some of them introduced as a poem, some of them introduced even as a conversation. But Shir Hamalot means that Jacob is in a state of joy. Even though he's living a tough life in an environment he would have rather not been in, with a constant threat of his brother's murderous intentions hanging over his head, he's still Shir. He, he, he sings. He's joyous. And that's also part of the template for how we're supposed to live as Jewish people. We're supposed to live with confidence and optimism no matter what kind of a storm is swirling around us. No matter how much we feel that we've been thrown to the ground, no matter how many difficulties we face in our lives, it's to remember at the ground level there is always the beginning of a ladder that potentially goes to the heavens. If we only know how to look at life, learn from the Torah, get our perspective, have that song in our in our voices, a spring in our step, because it is guaranteed that ultimately we all climb that ladder. We all lift the world. We eventually transform this world from the dark place that often feels like it is into a place of light, into a place of joy, into a place of divine awareness, into a place of fullness of potential. And please God, we get to experience that in this very special month, the month of Kislev, the month of light, the month of miracles, the month of liberation. Please God, this should be not just a month on the calendar remembering liberation and miracles but it should be a month where we see with our own eyes liberation and miracles wishing you a wonderful Shabbos please God everybody stay safe stay sane